0: Hello, you are listening to the All Girls School podcast. I'm your host, Victoria Barrett, a graduate from an all women's college in Virginia. This podcast aims to highlight the diverse experiences and life journeys of graduates from all women's colleges. Listeners can expect to hear candid conversations about a wide variety of topics. This podcast strives to be in an inclusive space, so some guests may identify themselves as non-binary or trans. I hope you're ready because class is about to start. Hi, and welcome back to the All Girls School Podcast, where I sit down with a different guest each week who has attended an all-women's college. I'm your host, Victoria Barrett, she, her pronouns, and I myself graduated from an all-women's college. I'm really excited for today's guest. She's an alum of Mary Baldwin College and the Virginia Women's Institute for Leadership. But before I officially introduce her, I'm gonna highlight some of her accomplishments, it's a long and impressive list, so I might need to pause a couple of times to catch my breath. She's a DACA recipient. She double majored in biomedical sciences and business administration at Mary Baldwin College. She has a Master of Public Health and a Master of Business Administration from Johns Hopkins University. She's the founder and president of the nonprofit organization Fundacion Atalante Guatemala. She's an intern for Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. And she's also a second-year MD student at SUNY Upstate Medical University. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Catherine Narvaez to the podcast. How are you doing? Hi, Victoria. Thank you for
1: having me. I'm excited to be here and to highlight just women empowerment in general. <laughs> I'm excited
0: to have you. Um, first of all, that was a very long list of accomplishments. So um, out of curiosity, how many hours of sleep do you get on average?
1: Oh, I... I- Honestly, try to get at least eight hours of sleep. It doesn't always happen, but that's the goal. Never less than six, though. Same, same. <laughs> um,
0: I don't think you know this, but you actually helped contribute to the creation of this podcast. I already had the idea floating in my head, um, and I had pitched it to some of my friends that you may know. Um, but when I saw your Facebook post, like I think sometime back in like March or April, you highlighted the fact that, you know, you were podcasting and that is something that you had just gotten into. So, um, that really kind of helped, uh, take me from being like, this is just an idea to like wanting to actually like run with it and make it happen. Um, so, and then I also started hitting you up on Facebook and I was like determined to have you (laughs) as a guest. And so, been like this has been like a relentless pursuit that feels like it's been like months and we're finally here
1: yeah no I'm ex- actually you know I, I do remember I posted something about it um, and then you hit me up right after um, and I you know yeah I'm, I'm so grateful uh, to be considered and privileged to be considered um, and to be given a platform to like not only just share my story but also empower others which is yeah. you know just as important yeah.
0: Um, and yeah, as I learn more about your story, um, you know, I professionally stalked you uh <laughs> and uh learned more. I was like very moved by what you've experienced through life and what you've had to overcome. And so I knew that like I absolutely had to have you on here so you can have the opportunity to share your story. Um, and so yeah, I'm just excited to get started.
1: Awesome. Well, no, thanks again for having me. All right. Um can you start off
0: by telling us where were you where you were born and uh how you and your family came to the United States
1: Yeah so I am originally from Guatemala um and then I think you know just life circumstances um abusive family lack of opportunities um my mother made a decision you know it was I remember her when I was little her telling me that <clears throat> we either die in Guatemala or we die attempting at a better life right and so being six years old, I didn't know exactly, you know, what that entailed or what that meant, but I just remember going to the capital city of Guatemala, because I was born on the east coast. Um, and then we were listening to a sermon somewhere and I remember the pastor telling my mom, like, God is gonna protect you. And I think that's what she needed in order for like her to start the journey, right? Like that just that um kind of hope. Um, but, you know, we left Guatemala with absolutely nothing, uh, clothes and money to last us maybe two weeks. We didn't realize at that moment that the journey was going to take a lot longer than that. It took us almost 18 months. And that's because we went from church to church, town to town, all through Mexico, Um, you know, going to the next town. And I I think this is where I just realized just the, you know, how love and, and empathy and compassion really moved people because, As as a child, you know, people would allow us to go into their homes, would take their kids off of their beds to allow my mother and my brothers and I to sleep in a comfortable bed, would feed us whatever they had. It was beans and tortillas or whatever it is. But nobody ever turned their back on us ever. Like they saw a mother with three kids and they would literally, you know, move us to the next town. And so we did that for a couple of months. And then when I got to the border, we had completely run out of money. Uh, we didn't have anything. My mom didn't know what to do. And um, there was this one time we went to this church and the lady was like, you know what? I think my my son can help you. Mm-hmm. And to many people, they're like, oh, like, you know, that's breaking the law or whatever. But to us at that moment, that was a huge blessing. Right. We were able to uh, cross the border. I remember being um, six, like seven at this point, running through the desert, like running through like a little forest swimming across the river. Um, and you know, it, it, my job was to make sure that the bag of clothes that we had didn't get wet. So we had, I had a dress, my mom had a dress and then my brother had some slacks and a shirt and we jumped into this, uh, floating device. So it was me and my brother and then my mom and my brother, my oldest brother pushed us from behind. And that is our entry into America with absolutely nothing but a bag of clothes and a heart full of dreams, um, you know, made it, made it to the border and crossed the border. And the one thing that I that, that still to this day, I realize just how different, and, and I think that for me was a pivotal moment. And being seven years old, you don't really know much. Mm-hmm. Um, we walked to the first house that we found. And the thing is through Mexico, that's what we were doing. We would go to a church, we would go to a house and people would always open their doors. We went to this house and the man was, had a a box of church chicken, church's chicken. I don't know if people know what that (laughs) is. It's like KFC. Um, but church's chicken and he was eating it. And my mom asked for food because we hadn't eaten. I mean, the crossing the border, the crossing, it, 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 it was a couple of days. And so, this man grabbed the box, threw it on the ground, and was like, Like, get out of here, like here, but get out of here. Um, and it it was so different than what I was accustomed to the previous months going through Mexico. And it, it really just like solidified just how different my experience was going to be. And and, you know, now looking back, it's probably because there was fear, right? Cause mm-hmm. like you're cross cr- uh, close to the border. Um, you know, immigration, like the laws and all of these things. So like, that's very understandable. Um, But to me, it was just very, very different. Um, And, you know, came to Georgia, settled in Georgia and, you know, started going to school and and all of these things. But that was basically just like the first seven years. And if you ask me, did I ever fear for my life? Uh, No. And I'm so thankful to my mother because never did I see my mother cry. Never did I see her, you know, um, kind of. You know, everybody's always like, "Oh, why would why would parents put their kids through so much, you know, trouble or 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 um, what is it um, kind of like put you in danger? Yeah, like yeah, in danger. Unquote. Why would why would parents yeah. do that? But you know, I've like looking back, it's like that's an act of love. Yep. And a lot of times, I think. You know, when Americans see that, they're like, oh, you know, if you are in a place where you can't feed your kids in a Mm -hmm. place where, you know, your town is crime ridden, where like the opportunities were as a woman, my chances of getting educated to be, you know, when I was growing up, I wasn't getting educated like my brothers were. And you look at it now, I'm the most educated person in my family. And that was not an expectation if I would have stayed in Guatemala. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it, it was an act of love. It was an act of um, wanting better for our kids. And I think, and I always tell people, like, if you close your eyes and you were in that circumstance, if you were in that situation, I guarantee you, nine times out of 10, you would also do that. Mm-hmm. Because a parent's love and, and wanting to see their kids do better, their future generations do better, it's just an innate, an innate reaction. Um, I think it's just different because people haven't had to make that decision you know and so like i always you know tell people it's like um to just be empathetic to that and to learn to walk in other people's shoes mm-hmm. um because a lot of the time we criminalize like my my pa- my mom is criminalized consistently mm-hmm. in this system and our narrative is consistently criminalized but just reminding that i am where i am because of the choices that my mother made mm-hmm. and those choices were made out of love yeah i yeah
0: she has has to be like an incredibly courageous person to how
1: many, it's, it was three of you, right? Yeah. Just her less. and three children. And I think about it now and I'm like, if that was me, would I have the fortitude and the strength to be able to take that journey, mm-hmm. right? Like not knowing what laid ahead. Um, and I don't think I'm strong enough to do that. You know, and I I now marvel at my mother's fortitude and strength in the face of circumstances where, we weren't guaranteed safety and we weren't guaranteed survival, but somehow some way she made it happen. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's amazing. And kudos to your mom. Cause yeah,
0: that, I mean, I don't think people realize, especially this day and age, like I have a master's in history, so I'm very like fascinated by the fact that people, you know, back in like 161500s, like were made all these treks across like the Atlantic ocean and even from, like, the eastern coast of the United States, all out west, like, that takes a lot of courage, like, just being able to make that trek. And I guess, like, American citizens have this privilege to where they don't know what that's like. Um, and to be in a circumstance where, like, like yes, it's dangerous, but the alternative is worse, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you're either, like, you're taking a risk, right? Like, whether you stay or you mm-hmm. go and it's like, what what risk do you want to take, yeah. right? And it's like, do you want to stay somewhere where the prospects for a child of a single mother of three were, you know, like I honestly there wasn't more much expectation for me, or try to make this journey to allow me the opportunity to make something of myself. And I'm so grateful.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so you said you got to the Georgia area, like Atlanta, what
1: was growing up um, undocumented like for you? Yeah, so I grew up on the Beaufort Highway Corridor, um, and I always tell people, like, I feel so privileged that I grew up in this area because this highway, you can get bami, pho, Korean barbecue, you can get pupusas, tacos, you name it. And, you know, it's it's a very diverse community. And, um, I didn't think that being undocumented was a big issue because mm-hmm. every, like everybody that I knew was undocumented. Yeah. And it's like, it was like, you know, to tell you that like white people in my high school were the minority. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like I, you know, it never dawned on me what it meant to be undocumented until I started, you know, seeing a lot of raids in my community where I saw parents being taken away from their children and their families, um, family separation, um, being scared to drive because driving without a license, you know, meant that you had to interact with authority, um, never went to the doctor, um, because, you know, we, one, we didn't have access. We didn't speak the language. We didn't understand the system, but two, it's like any interaction with any entity of authority, um, meant that we were putting ourselves at risk and, it just, you know, navigating life through that. And, you know, being told that I can't open the door if somebody comes, um, being, you know, my mother, because she didn't have any documentation, having to work three to four jobs. I mean, I saw my mother work, cleaning houses, cleaning fairs, um, working at like a, at a, like stores, just so many things just to keep us afloat. Um, extremely hardworking woman. Um, and you know, it's like, you see a lot of these things that other people don't really have to go through um being scared that we were going to get deported um and i remember when i was you know just growing up i i always always worked really hard in school but even the schools that i was a part of like i went to a title I elementary middle and high school my community is extremely underserved and you know i i and i always say this like when i when i was like younger in 5th grade science has always been my favorite subject um and there was this one time so m- throughout my academic career I up to high school I was in a trailer mm-hmm. and i you know my schools we had to like literally walk around trash cans because the the ceiling was leaking or sometimes the ac wasn't working or sometimes there wasn't any, any heating and so that's, the, that's my high school career. That's my middle school career. That's my elementary school career where it was consistently like all these inequities. But this one time I remember in fifth grade, I was running from my social studies class to Mr. Pepper's science class. Science, always been my favorite. And it was raining that day and there was mud all over, all over the ground. And so we had to go from one trailer to the next. I remember I fell. And I got to class and I couldn't even focus because I was shivering the entire time. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's when like a lot of things were starting to cement in my head where like, you know, you think that those things are normal, yeah. that every other school has the same problems, that every other kid is going through these same things. And I now marvel at where I am and where I, I, I had to start, not knowing any English literally having no resources to help me even learn. Um, I was in ESOL from when I got here to the 11th grade. Mm -hmm. Nobody tested me out of it. I honestly feel like I was put in a place where I was never challenged because the more people that are in ESOL, the more money the school gets. So it behooves them to not test people out because that's more money that they're getting. but that was so detrimental to me mm-hmm. and when I went to college, when I had to work even harder at that point because i was I was in classes where I was never challenged. Yeah. and so you know it was just a very very different experience, and I think for me, it kind of made sense when in high school. I went to advocate to the Board of Education to have uh, lamps in my fourth hall changed because we couldn't see. And other schools were advocating to have monuments in front of their school. And that, that, to me, that's where it clicked. I was like, wow. Here I was in trailers. Here I was running through the rain. Here I was still stuck in ESL. Even though I knew English, I knew how to read it, I knew how to write it, I mm-hmm. always been very academically inclined, advocating for better resources at my school, sports, like to tell you that our track was made out of concrete. Mm-hmm. We didn't even have regular tracks, like the track that is supposed to protect your joints and protect and make you a better runner. Mm-hmm. I remember in, in high school, all of us at one point had shin splints because we had to run in concrete. And, you know, so you think about that and it's like, well a lot of the kids were undocumented and it's like that, you know, that's not prioritized. Um, but I, I think, you know, even experiencing all of that, I think the, the hardest part was when I realized that what it meant to be undocumented was when I, I, you know, I joined a, in JROTC. I mm-hmm. did that for four years. I was, I've always had the mentality that I need to be better than I was yesterday. And I've always had that mentality in that I want to be the best that I possibly can. And this program, I was extremely good at it. Um, My sophomore year, I got selected to go to um, Leadership Academy. At Leadership Academy, I came first place overall, first place in my platoon, third place, or first place academically, third place PT. Like I killed it. Like I was one of the people walking away with practically every award (laughs) possible. And my area commander said, Catherine, make sure you apply for the Naval Scholarship. Make sure, like, guaranteed that I was going to get it. The following year, they choose 12 people to go back. Mm -hmm. I was one of six chosen to go back. Right. And, you know, my platoon killed it again. Like, the platoon that I was leading won every single award. And my commander was like, Catherine make sure you apply for the Naval Scholarship. And I was like, okay, I got it, Commander Hibbert. I got it. You know, you already told me <laughs> twice. Like, I promise you. Um, When my senior year comes around, I uh, I was like starting the application and stuff like that. And there was this one question that I couldn't answer. It's like, what is your social security? I didn't have one. So I remember calling my area commander and I was like, uh, Commander Hibbert, like, I don't know what to put in this in this question. And he was like, you're, you don't have a social security. Everybody has a social security. I was like, no, I, I don't have a social security. And that's when he realized that I was undocumented. That's when I realized my limitations. Mm-hmm. I was one of the hardest, most well-known people in my area. Um, and after watering this dream for four years and not being able to get it, like it was truly so heartbreaking. And I remember my commander telling me that year, he was like, I have never been so mad at the system like I mm-hmm. am right now because he, he told me, he was like, nobody else deserves this scholarship more than you. And, and that's just been kind of like things that happened throughout my life where like mm-hmm. I've been one of, you know, the most qualified people and I still can't, yeah. you know, take advantage of certain opportunities. And so, you know, you, yeah. you kind of have to work with the hand that life dealt you mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I I had the Army scholarship,
0: so I can only imagine what it would have been like to go through that paperwork and then just be like, no, you can't do this. Yeah. That's that's extremely hard. Um, how did you like bounce back from that?
1: Um, so, you know, growing up in Georgia, we are going backwards. Um, I, as As an undocumented person, I couldn't apply to universities. I remember there was this one time Where like I uh, I I was emailing and calling and I've always been this kind of person like I look for my opportunities I go Mm -hmm. and knock and I remember I called this one university and I was like hey I you know I submitted my application um can you see like you know when can I expect to hear back and the admissions counselor said oh you should go to community college because that's where people like you go I got rejected from every university that I applied to in Georgia. Every single university. And you know, when you when you're there in in that spot, you're like so low, you start believing that it's a you problem. Mm -hmm. That you're just not good enough, that you're just not capable enough, that you're not smart enough. And the thing is, I graduated in the top ten percent of my class. I graduated captain of my cross country basketball and track team. I was the commanding officer of my NGROTC unit. I had the grades, I had the the community service. Like I was one of the most um what is it? Like accomplished individuals mm-hmm. in my class. Yeah. And still then I was rejected from every university in Georgia because I didn't have a social security. And, you know, I, I told myself I was, I was in the gifted program. Mm-hmm. So even now I'm like, how was I in the gifted program and ESOL at the same time? That to me, is like half my classes were yeah. really easy. Half of my classes were extremely hard. And I was just like, oh my gosh. But I think that one thing that saved me was being in the gifted program because I saw all these kids who were extremely smart mm-hmm. go off to college and like applying to college, and I was like, I am not like I, I am just as smart as these kids, mm-hmm. you know. And there were some people in my class who were smarter than I was who couldn't go to college because they were also undocumented, yeah. and they had very different circumstances than I did. But you know, like I, I, I always say and I always speak of privilege because. I was privileged. I was one of the people in my class that was privileged in my gifted program that went to college that was undocumented Mm -hmm. because a lot of kids who were just as smart as me or even more smart or hardworking than I was, couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Didn't go to college. And, you know, and it's not that they weren't worthy enough or capable Mm -hmm. enough. It's just, I, I had to sacrifice a lot, you know, and, and, and I had the privilege of Having parents that, like, loved me and supported me. My brothers who, like, literally, Catherine, like, if this is what you want, go. Like, we, we'll figure it out. We'll figure out how to pay for it. We'll figure out whatever it is. Like, I, I'm i extremely blessed to say that. Um, And I was like, okay, well, if this means that I have to leave Georgia, I'm going to leave Georgia. And for a Latina, like, okay, yeah. we grew up very, like, oh, tight so it's, Yeah, and so it's like, you can't, like, going <laughs> yeah. far away was so... Difficult, you know. Um, But I think my parents and my brothers understood that if I wanted to make something of myself, this is what I Mm -hmm. had to do. So I looked at universities and I came across the Mary Baldwin website and I saw VWO. And I was like, oh my gosh, I I did four years of ROTC. I can go to college and do four years of, you know, like ROTC too. And um, I applied, I got in, and then I got a full academic scholarship. And I remember. I was, uh, when I first started VWO, I was like, like, I mean, I I was Navy all the way, (laughs) Navy. The first, like, we had orientation, I don't remember what it was, at VMI. And they were like, oh, you know, we need to see your social security, we need to see your visa. And I was like, I don't have one. So, I I, like, within a week, I got kicked out of Navy ROTC. Because, like, I couldn't, I couldn't, I was very, very disappointed. And at this, at this moment, I didn't have DACA. Like, I Mm -hmm. was completely, like, 100% undocumented, didn't have any, anything, uh, to like really help me or whatever. So I, you know, I I think it's like, I, I've always told myself, you know, even after experiencing a lot of these setbacks, even though I knew that I was capable, even though I knew I was worthy, even though I knew I was deserving, um, it still took a toll on my mental health. And I remember, I remember after the, the admission counselor told me you should go to community college uh, because that's where people like you go. I remember I cried for two whole days and I've developed a level of resiliency that honestly has allowed me to break barriers because, mm-hmm. you know, I I understand that not everybody is like this. But I dwell on things for two days and then I bounce back and I'm like, OK, and I bow to myself when I was younger, when I won a, a, a prize, an, an essay contest and they couldn't give me the prize money because I didn't have a social security. I told myself, I will not allow the fact that I'm undocumented, the fact that I don't have a social security to prevent me from accomplishing my dreams. And I made that, that promise to myself in seventh grade. And, you know, I, I think I, that constant reminder of like, a closed door is not a lost opportunity, mm-hmm. is a redirection. Yeah. Maybe that's not where I need to go. So I, you know, I ended... I ended up at Mary Baldwin, and um, I'm like so grateful because I think I I had always been a leader, but I think a lot of my formative years and what I, how, I, changed as a leader, um, a lot of that came from being a part of the Eagle Program, mm-hmm. um, and I'm so thankful for it. And even even being in like Army ROTC, and and like no, I told you this earlier. Like I my my sophomore my freshman year, I became the ninth cadet overall in the entire, entire army battalion, by my sophomore year, I was number fourth. I was the first female fourth overall. And, um, you know, it it was like, for me, I was like, this is really what I want. And I've always, even despite not having access to it, I've always just had that mentality of working hard and being yeah. the best possible for me, not just for anybody else, but like for me, like I mm-hmm. want to be the best that I can. Um, and even then I remember, um, General Bissell. Yep, good old General Bissell. Yeah, may he rest in peace. Like General Bissell, uh, wrote a letter to the Secretary of the Army. I think it was. Like, I don't remember. He uh. wrote a letter to try to get me in because, like, my my like my like professors at VMI, like, mm-hmm. they saw something in me. Like, yeah. they're like, this girl is good. She's a good leader. She's you know, and they tried. They tried. They tried to move whatever you know, yeah. and it just never worked out. But the fact that I stuck with it um, just says a lot about my character because mm-hmm. I would have, I would have gotten out. I would have given up, you know. But I yeah. decided to stick with it because one, I don't, I don't like to quit things. Um, but two is like, it's just a testament of you know, just like my character.
0: Yeah, yeah. The fact that General Bissell wrote that letter, that's like a, that's a big deal. Like that itself is like a testament to like what kind of cadet you were and your work ethic and yeah and I know like I was a senior when you were a freshman so I didn't really get to you know see your your growth and um I'm I'm sad that I didn't like interact with you more and and get to know you because um yeah I'm I'm just like blown away by your resilience and how much you've had to persevere through
1: yeah no it was um I you know I, I think that I've never, like I told you, like for me, it was a culture shock going to Mary Baldwin and being in the Vivo program mm-hmm. because here I was an undocumented person in Atlanta uh, where in my community, everybody, <laughs> everybody was practically undocumented. And then putting myself in a situation where you're like in a military program, like, you know, people who are commissioning, people who, mm-hmm. you know, are like third generation, like military, yeah. like, you know, um, and. I was never afraid to tell people that I was undocumented until I got to Mary Baldwin, until I started, you know, being in this program, because it kind of, you know, I remember I I received so many comments from like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know people like you existed. And I'd be like, what does that mean? Like, am I from (laughs) Mars or something like, you know, what does that mean? Um, to people being very critical about uh, like undocumented immigrants and um, basically, you know. Telling me, like, why I'm here or whatever. And I I remember this one time I went with one of my sister-in-law's eat, And they, you know, um, her parents were talking really bad about immigrants. Um, And she had to, like, stop them and say, oh, you know, Catherine is an undocumented immigrant. Um, And then, you know, like, oh, like, we didn't know. Like, you know, and it was like, but it was like, oh. Catherine is deserving. Like she's a hard worker. Catherine yeah. is this. And so it's like this, we go back to this narrative of like good immigrant, bad immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, and people feeling like I am worthy because I've accomplished so much yeah. versus like, you know, any, somebody else, like my friends who are just as worthy and capable, but couldn't, mm-hmm. they didn't have the opportunities that I did. Um, doesn't mean that they're not worthy or yeah. that they're, or, or they're deserving, you know, or to, of being here. Um, but experiencing a lot of those comments, um, I remember there, I was one, one, time I was like running with the cross country team. Cause you know, we ran cross country and, uh, I remember I was, I was sitting in somebody like, I, I, I don't remember what it was, but like, he stops me. He's like, Oh, like, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, like I'm, I'm school here. He's like, and then he asks me, he doesn't ask me if I have any kids. He asks, how many kids do I have? And, you know, like Mary Baldwin is in like a small town. <laughs> yeah. It's like you don't really see that much diversity and stuff like that. But I, I think that I started experiencing a lot of these microaggressions and a lot mm-hmm. of like at a very young age. So like I've been able to like kind of, you know, learn how to navigate those questions. Um, yeah. But it, it was it was like a very difficult time uh, to say. And I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but there is this one like we one for the FT, one, one FTX my freshman year. Um, I couldn't go because I, so I didn't have, I didn't have anything. And and I, and I understand, right? Because like the military, you, you don't want to train anybody that's, you know, but I received an email and I I was looking for it, like a couple of, uh, it's like, we don't want to train terrorists and we don't know. Yeah. Um, and you know, and we don't know, and i and like i literally i remember I cried that entire time all my peers were at f t x and I couldn't go um you know because like i loved f t x um and I don't know if you want to explain what f t x is <laughs>
0: yeah, um, so for listeners uh f t x is just like an army term that stands for field training exercise, so that's just when um. I like to call it army camping. (laughs) So, yeah, you go out into the field, uh, you carry your little rucksack, which is like an army backpack with a bunch of crap in it that you need. Um, And then you're doing whatever type of training you have like laid out for for that particular weekend. It's typically like a four day FTX um, uh, and it's organized through VMI, which is the Virginia Military Institute, where. Um, VWIL cadets did um, their ROTC through.
1: Yeah, no, and and I remember, I I remember being so like disheartened and heartbroken. One because I couldn't go, but then this idea that because I was undocumented, I was kind of considered a terrorist. When when you know, I I was like one, and I always tell people like I was like, and I still am one of the most patriotic people mm-hmm. that that I know. Like I. You know, I was willing to join the military at a young age. I was willing, and I continued, even when they told me no, I continued it through college, trying so hard mm-hmm. and still being told no um, to now at that point kind of being told that I was a terrorist. And it's just, you know, it it was very like a hard pill to swallow. Um, but, you know, I I mean, Looking back, I kind of understand why, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't you 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 want to be, um, you want to know who you're training and whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, at that yeah. at that moment, I didn't see it that way, and I was I was so so heartbroken. And yeah, well, I'm I'm reading this book called
0: um, The Undocumented Americans, and there's a specific section about 9 11 and how that changed a lot of things for people who are undocumented. One of them being, like, they couldn't get driver's license and things like that afterwards. And how um, uh, ICE came, like, was reformatted and became ICE after 9-11. And there was that mindset of, like, we've got to protect, you know, the United States from terrorists. And so it completely um, changed how, like people who are undocumented, live their everyday lives.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. So a lot of my research when I was in grad school focused on detention facilities and like specifically looking at ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the, the agency under the, under the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and that, that specific uh, branch was established after 9-11. Yep. Um, and the thing is, it was s- supposed to protect America from terrorism and, you know, but you look at the track record of just ICE in general and like mm-hmm. they're deporting your, like the person that goes to church on Sunday and, you know, goes yeah. to work and provides for the family. Like they're not deporting, you know, like criminals and stuff like that. And it's like everybody just gets clumped together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a very... Um, unjust system, even yeah. the detention facility where, you know, the, the and I, and I want to remind everybody that crossing the border is not a criminal act, it's a mm-hmm. civil one, which means that, you know, but it, the, the detention facilities, um, when you get, you know, get picked up by ICE, and especially in Georgia, there was this contract, it's called 287G, uh, where police departments and uh, in immigration work together. So mm-hmm. if you were booked in for driving without a license, for example, and you uh, posted bond uh, or bail, sorry, uh, then you would be released. But then immigration is waiting for you because immigration got alerted every time somebody got booked in, and so that for our communities that was very detrimental because now when we had domestic violence cases, yeah. when we had um, robberies, when we had any kind of crime that was done to us, um, or you know we witnessed it, nobody would come forward. Mm-hmm because any interaction with police departments meant that you were learning ice. Um, and you know, it, it's like, you you think about all of these things. And so like constantly you ask yourself, why are people living in fear? Why are people, you know, living in the shadows? People are okay with like just living underwater. Um, and it's because of those things like that. It's things that like perpetually, um, continue perpetuating this rhetoric that like, Mm -hmm. you know, immigrants are criminals or, and you, we saw it in politics. We saw it in the news. We saw it, we consistently see it, the criminalization of our narratives, the criminalization of mm-hmm. our, of our stories. Um, when in all actuality, most of us just, just want to live and work and, and play, yeah. you know, and provide to the American economy, provide to society, um, in whichever way that we can and can contribute. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, So earlier you
0: mentioned um, DACA and the fact that it wasn't necessarily available at the time that you went to Mary Baldwin College or you didn't have it at that time. Can you explain to listeners who might not be as familiar with what DACA is
1: and how it's kind of um, transformed your life? Yeah, yeah. So uh, DACA was introduced by President Obama in 2012. um, In so we're considered DREAMers mm-hmm. um, because uh, the, of the DREAM Act, which would allow uh, children or, or people who came to the U.S. as minors uh, to have a pathway to citizenship. And that was being battled in Congress for like a decade before DACA was introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, th- this was uh, the Obama administration's way of providing some sort of relief mm-hmm. for DREAMers. And so it it became a program where, you know, you had to have no criminal record. Um, You had to be either in school or working. Uh, You have to have had your GED. Um, And you had to have come to the U.S. before you were 16. Right. So if you were 16 in a day, that's too bad. Uh, But it allowed us to get a a, like a a work permit, a driver's license, a Social Security. Um, And, you know, I I feel very fortunate, even like now pursuing medicine and realizing. I always complained about like oh like even though I was giving a lot of opportunities, mm-hmm. it didn't open a lot of the doors. Yeah. So like for example, you know I I double major double minor in 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 college, and I really wanted to do research. I always knew that I wanted to be a physician. Um. And you know I I just didn't know how the system worked. So I kind of been navigating it myself, kind of figuring it out as I went, but I wanted to do research and I applied to all these research opportunities and I was denied from all of them because even though I had a social security, yeah. I wasn't a permanent resident or a citizen. So even though I was granted this, this mm-hmm. opportunity to be able to work and drive um, and be and live worry-free of deportation, I was still denied many opportunities. mm mm-hmm. With that said, I am still very privileged because I've been able to take advantage of other things, um, like not having to worry if I get stopped because I don't have a driver's license, being able to actually be able to work. And, you know, uh, like when I graduated college. Having a job where I had PTO and I had, you know, like an office and like it it was just a privilege Mm -hmm. that like people in my community don't get like most of my friends. Are either working as service workers or construction, mm-hmm. um, and so for me it was like, you know, a, a realm of opportunities that opened. People were able to open businesses, uh, buy homes, buy cars. So like it, it opened a lot of opportunities. Um, and even you know, even now when when you look back, I I kind of feel I have a lot of people that I mentor who reach out to Catherine like, what should I do? You know. Completely undocumented because in 2017, September 2017, Mm -hmm. September 5th or 7th, I can't remember, 2017, when the Trump administration rescinded the program, it stopped any new applications. So even if you met all the qualifications, even if you didn't have criminal record, you came before you were 16, you couldn't apply to the program anymore. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who... Every year would be able, would be eligible for it can no longer apply. Um, and right now we've been fighting this in the courts, you know for so many years and it's like this constant emotion like emotional roller coaster because even now, um, a Texas judge has the has the power to literally eliminate the program mm-hmm. and most likely it's going to end. And, you know, even having to prepare for that and and being able in realizing that, um, you know, there's a huge possibility that I would have went through undergrad, grad school, medical school and not be able to practice medicine. Yeah, because the likelihood that this program is going to be eliminated is it's very high, mm-hmm. um, even though we honestly been fighting. We've been in and out of courts for the past mm-hmm. like seven, eight years. Um, and it's just, it's a very disheartening, disheartening uh, situation to be in. So like extremely grateful, uh, but it also came with a lot of emotional mm-hmm. <laughs> distress, um, yeah. not being able. Like I remember, I remember when I, when this announcement came out, I was in California. I had moved to California to establish residency so that I could apply to med school. Mm-hmm. And I was studying for my MCAT and when this decision came out, I remember I stopped studying. I stopped like everything I was doing and I was like, I need to go back home. Like I think like, there's no point, like there's no point in me pursuing my dreams, my goals, because there's no way that I'm going to be able to practice medicine if, if the program is eliminated. Right. Um, and, and that, that's what happened to a lot of people. Like our dreams and our goals were kind of put on hold. Yeah because we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and, you know, everybody telling us that we have to renew as soon as possible because the program is only for two years, mm-hmm. right? And every every year and a half, you have to submit your application again. And the thing is, with DACA, you are willingly providing the government with where you work, where you mm-hmm. live, who your parents are, um, uh, you know, what you're doing. So they have that information. And I remember when I was, Um, when I was in grad school, like there was a, a, you know, the Supreme Court was going to decide whether the program was constitutional or not. And ICE had said, if the program is struck down, we're going after all DACA recipients. And the thing is, they could have, because they know exactly where we are. Mm -hmm. Because every two years, we provide them willingly. We provide that information. So it's like just a scary place to be in, Um, you know, but I, like I said, like still extremely grateful because I am in med school because of DACA. I was able to get a lot of scholarships because of DACA. I was able to um, do research because of DACA, because even though I couldn't get NIH funded grants, institutions could fund me privately because of DACA. So extremely grateful for the program. Um, And I just hoped that, you know, other people could also benefit from what I am able to benefit.
0: Hello, listeners, this is your host, Victoria Barrett. I just want to let you know that this is the end of episode two, part one with Kat Narvaez. So make sure that you go check out part two, where we continue this amazing conversation. Thanks for listening to the All Girls School Podcast. But before class is over, please take a moment to subscribe or leave a review on Apple or Spotify podcast. If you enjoy video content, head over to our YouTube channel, at All Girls School Podcast, where you can watch and listen to each episode. You can also follow us on Instagram, at All Girls School Podcast, and you can email us questions, stories, and more at Podcast at gmail.com. That's it for today. Class
1: is dismissed.